Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, The Missionary God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, One New Man. It is a part of sinful human nature that sets up barriers that keeps others out. On December 1, 1955, Mrs. Rosa Parks, an African-American seamstress, sat down on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. It was an established rule in the American South at that time that Negro riders had to sit in the back of the bus and that if the bus was filled up, were expected to surrender the seat to any white if it was needed. And when asked to move to let a white bus rider be seated, Mrs. Parks refused. She didn't argue, but she didn't move. And the bus was stopped and the police were called and Mrs. Parks was immediately arrested. African-American pastors and community leaders became involved. And by December the 5th, an organized boycott had been called of all the buses in Montgomery. Many walked to work. Whoever had a car arranged rides for strangers and for friends. And then the police struck back. They arrested anyone picking up people in a carpool for illegally picking up hitchhikers. Any African-American person standing on a street corner was arrested for loitering. Dr. Martin Luther King, who organized and supported the boycott of the buses, found that his home was firebombed. His wife and baby daughter miraculously escaped injury, but Dr. King demanded that angry blacks learn to meet hate with love. It took almost two full years, but finally, the Supreme Court of the United States, on November 13, 1956, ruled the Alabama's laws requiring blacks to sit at the back of the bus and demanding they stand for whites to be illegal. Everywhere we look, there are stories of dividing walls of hostility. You know, in Canada, it was the treatment of Chinese railway workers or the residential schools. And in the ancient world where the New Testament was birthed, the divide between Jew and Gentile was especially difficult. If the gospel of Jesus Christ was to reach out to the world, this divide would need to be seriously addressed. In expressing this divide, Ephesians 2 verse 14 uses the phrase, the dividing wall of hostility. Well, no doubt Paul was referring to a reality that was found in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The temple building itself was built on an elevated platform, and round it was the court of priests, and east of that was the court of Israel, and further east was the court of women. So these three courts were all on the same level as the elevation of the temple itself. And from this level, you descend down five steps to a walled platform. And then on the other side of the wall were 14 more steps to another wall and beyond which was an outer court called the court of the Gentiles. And from any part of this court, the Gentiles could look up to the temple but were not allowed to approach it. They were cut off from it by a four-foot thick wall which had a notice placed on it in Greek and in Latin. And it read, No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. In other words, all foul, uncircumcised Gentile dogs will be shot on sight. Now, that's a dividing wall of hostility. But the Christian faith had the answer. 
Christ, it taught, is the end of all divisions between people. Christ alone brings a community of brotherhood and sisterhood among those who were formerly at odds with each other. In Christ, Germans and Jews can love each other. In Christ, Japanese and Koreans can sit together at the table of the Lord. In Christ, blacks and whites can call each other brother and sister. In Christ, we have peace. But how is that accomplished? So let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 15 in stages. But before we do that, let's set the table. The first part of Ephesians 2 tells us about God's saving action in our individual lives. It tells us that we were once dead in our transgressions and sins. We were by nature the objects of wrath. It then tells us that if we have come to Christ once being dead, we are now made alive. Christ has individually saved us from sin and from death. But Christianity does not end with an individual relationship with Jesus. You see, it always moves from individual salvation to corporate living. At the heart of authentic Christianity is a true, loving, caring, including community. Here's the problem. How do you build authentic community in a hate-filled and divided world? And how is there a hope in taking the message of Jesus to the variety of cultures of this world? So let's start by reading Ephesians 2, 11 to 12. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, every one of us should be aware of how unlikely the early community of Christians really was. Jews and Gentiles formed one church. And so our text begins with the word, remember. You know, it's a word to the ancient Christian community. Remember how it used to be before you belonged to the people of God. Remember who you once were. Remember your culture. Remember your people group. Remember your society. And remember that the church began in Jerusalem. Jesus was proclaimed as the Jewish Messiah, the hope of Israel. Yet Jesus had told his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But, but how did they do that? So one day, Peter the Apostle received a visit from an angel telling him to go to the home of a Gentile Roman centurion, preach the gospel there. You know, as a good Jew, he had never been in a Gentile home in his entire life. I mean, who knew what was there? What uncleanness, what Gentile filth could greet his eyes? So listen to what he says when he arrives, and I'm reading Acts 10, 28. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. (laughs) That's an amazing and groundbreaking statement. And by the time the church began to form in the Gentile world, it was a multicultural international church. In fact, the first Gentile church, the church in Antioch, responsible for the greatest missionary project in history, was multicultural and international. You see, Acts 13 verse 1 says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So let's look at those names. Barnabas is Jewish. 
comes from the island of Cyprus and is from the tribe of Levi, tribe of priests. He knows the Jewish laws and would have been schooled against association with Gentile uncleanness. Simeon is also called Niger, and since Niger means black, many have suggested it's an African name. Lucius is a Latin name, perhaps a Roman. He comes from Cyrene, North Africa. Menaean came from the household of Herod Antipas, and many studying this passage suggest that he may have been an adopted brother of Herod, the king who had beheaded John the Baptist. And of course, we know Saul as the Apostle Paul, who, who had once called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And the point is that the early church was international from its beginnings. They, coming from every conceivable background, found in Christ something greater than their differences. So Paul, writing to the Ephesians, wants to remind them of what they were before they were included in the people of God. So first, they were culturally, racially, socially divided. They were Gentiles in the flesh. And then later it says they were called the uncircumcised by the circumcised Jews who themselves were circumcised in the flesh. And so what does all that mean? It means that all of the things that kept Jews and Gentiles apart were things done in the flesh. They were things that were done on the outside. They were things that were not lasting and had no spiritual value. But a Jew might protest and say, wait a minute, circumcision is not fleshly. It was given to the Jews by Abraham. It came directly from God. But, but even so, that's not the whole story. See, both Moses and Jeremiah repeatedly commanded Jews to circumcise their hearts. And the point is that simply being circumcised did not make you right with God. See, in the history of Israel's faithlessness, circumcision had come to mean less than faithfulness to God. It had become a barrier by which others were excluded. Gentiles were called the uncircumcision. They were unacceptable. They were racially separate from the people of God. But listen to Paul's words in Romans 3 verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. You see, that's one place, says the Bible, where all humanity is united. That is, we are united in this. We are equally in sin. When we speak of missions, what are we speaking about? Is it possible we've lost our way as the church, as mission organizations, as God's people? Is proclaiming the gospel still of first importance? Who is the gospel for and what are the implications for those who hear? And do all Christians have a role? These and so many other questions are considered in Dr. Neufeld's new series, The Missionary God. Listen to the daily Bible teaching program every day on this station or any time at your convenience online at backtothebible.ca, through the Back to the Bible Canada mobile application or podcast. And this month, remember to participate in our International Ministries Match Campaign. Every dollar given to Back to the Bible Canada International Ministries will be matched by another dollar up to $25,000. So don't miss this great opportunity. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, in defining the barrier between Jews and Gentiles, well, he paints a bleak picture for world missions. The Gentiles, he says, were rejected by Israel. 
See, they had no savior and thus no means of forgiveness. They were not the chosen people. And the nations from which they came were not specially chosen by God. They, they had no covenant agreement with God. They had no guarantee for eternity. And for that reason, they had no hope. And that's not to say that Gentiles didn't believe in God. They just didn't have the God of Israel. And the God of Israel is the only true and living God. So Paul presents us with an appalling list. Not only were we divided from each other, we stood outside the chosen people of God, having no promises, without hope and without God. And that's what we all were before we met Christ. We were culturally, racially, socially, religiously, and spiritually divided. The word that describes all of that, that's the word alienation. We were alienated from God and from each other. We were alienated from Israel. And then Paul again inserts a word. It's a formidable word. It's that small little word, but. Notwithstanding all of this, God found a way to end our alienation. Yes, it's true that we were once divided, but we are now united in Christ. Look again at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love that language far away, near. See, that was traditional language in Israel for all the Gentiles. See, the Gentiles were far away and Israel was near. But we who are far away have been brought near. It's it's language that's been borrowed from Isaiah 57 verse 19. It simply says, peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But how are we healed? Well, the answer is given in verse 13. It came through the blood of Christ. So, Do you see that the blood of Jesus not only heals us from our sins, but it heals our divisions. See, it makes it possible to love one another, regardless of our backgrounds. And that, by the way, is what we celebrate at baptism. I mean, the reason we baptize upon confession of faith, because we want to say that regardless of your background, whether you're from a Christian home or a Buddhist home, Catholic or Protestant, Jew or Gentile, see, the only way to be saved is through the blood of Christ. It's, it's the same for everyone. No exceptions. All share in sin. All need a Savior. No one has special favor because of background. But here's the question. How has Jesus accomplished that? Well, look again at verses 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, our Bible has rightly translated these words. He is our peace. But the way the words are arranged in the original language tells us that there is an emphasis here on he. See, Paul meant to say that Jesus alone, he is our peace. The only possibility of peace is Jesus. See, I want you to think of all the prophecies of Jesus that surround peace. Isaiah 9, 6 calls the coming Messiah the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 57, verse 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. And that's to proclaim Jesus is to proclaim peace. Listen to Micah 5, verse 5. It says, And he will be their peace. But how did Jesus do this? How is he our peace? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians, he says, Jesus abolished the law of the commandments in ordinances. See, but here's the question. I mean, how did he do that? Seeing that Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, 
but to fulfill them? Well, the answer is that Jesus fulfilled all the moral demands of the law, keeping all its requirements, but he abolished the Jewish ceremonial law. In other words, the Ten Commandments stand. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross means that the ceremonial law, such as, you know, ceremonial washing and Sabbath restrictions and Jewish dietary laws and circumcision and rules of ceremonial purity, I mean, all of these that formed a barrier between Jews and Gentiles, all of these that made it impossible for Gentiles to enter into fellowship with Jews, every single one of these have been wiped away in his blood. But how? Well, they have because of his one sacrifice. Jesus ended the need for sacrifice for all time. See, unlike the sacrifices in the Old Covenant, they needed to continually be repeated, for they were only an annual reminder of sin. But his sacrifice, his atonement for sin, rendered the temple ritual to be completed. See, traditionally, a great many theologians have divided the law into three areas. The moral law, which is still in effect, then there's the ceremonial law, which was fulfilled in the blood of Christ, and then there's the civic law, and these are laws that deal specifically only with Israel's national life and were never intended to be applied to the Gentiles. Now, I know that takes a little bit to decipher, but I kind of like that division. But at any rate, it's now apparent that the law can't save, but also now in Christ, it's also apparent that the law can no longer divide. The hostility imposed by the law is broken. Christ is our peace. And so we're saved by Christ alone. And once you accept that, you realize that, that we can fly across any barrier and reach any people group. Imagine how that must have been in the early church. A Jewish convert to Christ went over to his Gentile brother's house for the first time in his life. As he approached the house, he noticed that the Gentile had a carcass of a pig hanging by the barn, covered with blood and still drying in front of an open barn door. He's shocked and appalled. He, he tries not to show his discomfort, but he's invited in. And he notices a young man in the house about the same age as his daughter. I mean, what if they attend the same church and this uncircumcised young man falls in love with his daughter and he recoils at the thought? And it's Saturday, and who knows, that family has been working the fields, and he tries not to think about that. And, and just when he is filled with more disgust than he ever imagined, this Gentile convert says to him, let's eat. And then he brings out a cup, and he pours in wine, and he breaks bread. And he takes him by the hand and said, this bread is the body of Christ. This cup is the new covenant poured out in his blood. And suddenly... All the animosity fades. The dividing wall of hostility crumbles in that moment. The two of them bow together and unite in prayer to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and the Savior of the whole world. And if that was possible in the first century, and it was, it's still possible today. In fact, that's our mandate in Christ. And of course, cultural barriers remain language, clothing, expressing how we express things. I mean, these are unique to every culture, and Christ didn't come to break that down. Furthermore, this is not a passage that tells us that Jewish cultural distinctions should be wiped out. 
But all the barriers that prevent us from approaching the throne of God together as brothers and sisters, all the barriers that prevent deep, heartfelt love and fellowship don't stand anymore. Christ is our peace, having made peace with God and peace among believers. John Oxenham wrote well, In Christ there is no east or west, in him no south or north, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. And that's Jesus. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the end of all religious and cultural divisions. And if that's true, then Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. That's found in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So a new race has now emerged. A new person has come forth. Suddenly, I'm no longer, you know, a German-Canadian. I'm a Christian. And I have more in common with my Japanese brother or sister who knows Christ than I have with any German or Canadian who does not. I want you to notice the word new. The Greek word is the word kainos. It doesn't mean new as in something recently completed, like saying, you know, I've got a new car. It means new in the sense of something that has never existed before. Never before did God have a people of his own made up of every nation, tribe, and people, and tongue. Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Imagine that. John, perhaps the concern would be that, uh, and I don't think it's true, that Christianity is trying to take away the distinctiveness of a culture, or the uniqueness of a culture. No, I, you know, when Christ takes barriers down, it means that there's love and acceptance within cultures or, or between cultures, I really should say. I mean, I think it, it uh, you know, Christ actually ends, you know, the, the impulse towards racism. It's just there. Uh, having said that, I mean, I think I'd want to say specifically uh, to Jewish brothers and sisters, you know, the gospel does not end Jewishness any more than it ends any other culture. Uh, it simply, however, brings uh, love, brotherhood, and acceptance between us. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld, and when you read Acts 13, verse 1, you can't help but be encouraged by the list of names presented in the church in Antioch. As Back to the Bible reaches out to the nations, I'm exhilarated to know that the gospel is being spread to people of such a wide diversity of backgrounds. I think God is pleased with this. This is how the early church was formed, to reach out to a multitude of different people groups. His God's call. Now, with your support, Back to the Bible Canada is responding to that call by translating the daily program into key languages, beginning with Mandarin and then expanding into other languages that offer both a unique national and global impact. For this purpose, a number of like-minded ministry friends have made a match pledge of $25,000, meaning for every dollar you give, 
An additional dollar will be matched up to 25,000. Would you join us in making this international initiative possible? Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.